Well, I'd like to pray with you for a moment before we look into God's word together. Let's pray. So, Father, how grateful we are for your word. And as we consider it now, we pray that you would be exalted, that our hearts would be shaped in the way that you want, whether it's through encouragement or challenge or whatever the issue is. We, we would offer ourselves to that end. And may this be a time where you are lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, we're going to be talking about worry. But I don't want you to worry about it, because God has some very good stuff. And the thing is, is this is something I kind of personally wrestle with. So you can pray for me as I'm preaching here that I won't be worried as I talk. But during the message, what I'd like you to do is to use your bulletin, just jot on it, or use your device to make some notes and create what I would call my worry list. And as you go along, and as we go along through this message, if there's things that come to mind that you're worrying about or you're going to worry about, I'm going to encourage you to just jot them down briefly so that you won't be distracted with them because later in the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just surrender those things to God and just turn them over to you. You know, I've heard that there's three ways that you can tell you're getting older or old. One of them is that uh, whenever you get up out of a chair, you start making noises. (laughs) Secondly, uh, when you're driving around looking for a parking spot in the mall or something like that, you are talking to yourself. Well, I wonder if that person's going to pull out. What are they doing? Well, are they putting their seatbelt on? Should I wait or not? And you can see people talking to themselves as they're waiting for a spot. And the third one is, is you find yourself going up to people that maybe you've never met or you barely know, and you say to them, so how did you sleep last night? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that kids never say that to one another? So how did your nap go today? They never say stuff like that. And it's an interesting question. How did you sleep? And the psalmist says this. He says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You know, you can do some things about worry, some things that help mitigate it a little bit, but generally there's no fancy solutions, but there is a profound solution. You can turn it over to God. And these last few months for our family have been pretty stressful, and so it's just been a joy to be learning again just the pleasure of just turning things over to God and seeing him handle them and deal with them as we go through those things. But I don't always do this stuff so well. And more often than I would like to admit, I wake up with my mind racing about a problem that I don't know how to address, a decision I have to make, a difficult talk I need to sit down with someone and have. And so right now we're in this series of messages called I'm In, But... And the idea behind this series of messages is, I believe in God, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a biblical believer, but in this one area of life, I've sort of said to God, this is off limits. 
And so practically speaking, if I was really honest about it, what I'm saying is I believe in you, God, but in this one area of my life, I'm a practical atheist. I don't really believe you exist here, or what you say doesn't really matter. Because it's an area of life, I've said to God, off limits. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about, and we're going to talk about, I'm in, but I still worry a lot. Two years ago, I was in Germany doing some studies around the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And as I was there, one of the things we studied as a bit of a sidebar thing was the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and went some of the sites where he was and he spoke and he lived and he was imprisoned and learned a number of things about him and appreciated a number of things about him. Not everything, but a number of things. And Eric Metasis has written a biography on Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a, a brilliant theologian and pastor in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. He actually was in the United States before that, teaching at a prestigious seminary. But when he could see the way things were beginning to go in Germany in the 1930s, and he could sense what was going to happen. He actually left the safety of the United States and returned because he knew what they might be facing as a people, and he wanted to be there for that. And so he sacrificed everything to stand with Christ against the Nazis. And he did it with faith and with poise, not because he thought everything would work out fine, and it decidedly did not, because he was hounded he was censured, they wouldn't let him talk, he was persecuted, he was pushed around, he was eventually imprisoned, and eventually executed. But because of Christ, who Bonhoeffer said and understood, uh, he demands and expects total obedience. In return, Christ gave him incredible meaning and purpose and a security that death just could not diminish. And you know, one of the things that will keep me awake at night once in a while is what kind of people are we producing in the church for when the persecution comes? Because it's coming. We see evidence of this all the time. Maybe not like what Bonhoeffer went through, but we're moving in that direction as a culture all the time. What kind of people are we producing in the church? The first sermon that Bonhoeffer ever spoke publicly was based on Psalm 121. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 121. Psalms are found right in the middle of your Bible. If you kind of open it in the middle, you'll probably be in the Psalms. Psalm 121. And as I as I read this, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. And the psalmist writes this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. Lord already is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. 
The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. The Hebrew language and culture is filled with imagery, and it's always meant to be intensely practical. And these are some of the things we're going to draw out of this passage. And we begin with this expression right at the beginning of the psalm, where it says, I lift up my eyes. And it's a very common expression in the Bible. And it's not talking primarily about your physical eyes. We're told with, when, when we see those words in Scripture, it means to be aware of, and in particular to be aware of the possibilities around you. And so sometimes in Scripture, this expression is used in a very positive way. So for example, Abraham earlier in the Old Testament is told to lift up his eyes and take in everything around you, and he is told that whether he looks to the east or the west or the north or the south, God says to him, I am going to give all of this to you and your descendants. Sometimes it has a negative connotation as well with the character Abraham. He's told to lift up his eyes and be aware of the mountain that he's approaching because this is the mountain on which he believes he will be sacrificing his only son. And it's a Hebrew way of expressing a profound freedom, and we're going to talk about this, a profound freedom that God gives us in the midst of life. So that even if you're in a concentration camp or in a prison like Bonhoeffer was, and I was in one of the last places he was held before he was executed, he was moved Short, in Buchenwald in Germany, and then he was moved to another place and he was executed. And I've been in two concentration camps in my life. They're not pleasant places. I really don't want to go back. And it was one of the last places he was before he was executed for standing against the Nazis. And God says, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes, and with God's help, you will have a freedom to decide, even in the midst of your circumstances, where to place your thoughts, where to place your attention, where to place your trust. And I can focus on and be captivated by my problems or circumstances, and I can worry about them or my trouble, or with God's help, I can focus on him and allow him to orient me in a very different way. I lift up my eyes, the psalm continues, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And we often think, especially in proximity to the mountains like we are, we often think of hills and mountains as very positive things, and they are. They're spectacular, they're beautiful. Just last week or so, I was driving through the mountains, and they are certainly a beautiful sight to behold. But in the ancient world, if you were wanting to travel, which was a very dangerous thing to do in the ancient world, and in particular this psalm, which is a psalm of ascent, it's called A Journey of Ascent, and it's talking about pilgrims. For pilgrims on a journey of ascent, hills were a problem in the ancient world for travelers because they were in the way, and they were hard to climb, and there was very little water. It's so hard, as I often say, it's so hard for us to understand this in Canada, but there's just a distinct scarcity of natural resources in the nation of Israel. 
And so to climb that hill in the very hot conditions was a taxing thing when there's like no water. And when you want to travel, you have got to think, if you, if you value your life, you think very carefully about where am I going to get that next glass of water. As well, of course, those would be positions, and they even are to this day, all the high points are military strong points. And Israel, even to this day, every high point is considered a military strong point. And so as you're traveling, you had to know as you were approaching that hill, or what they would call a mountain, there's very likely a military strong point up there. Are they someone that's going to try to kill me or befriend me? In fact, it says in the book of Isaiah chapter 40, it says, every valley, understand their mindset, and it says it here, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. Translation, heaven is going to look exactly like Saskatchewan. (laughs) In a certain sense, You could exchange the word hills with circumstances in a certain sense. I lift up my eyes to my circumstances. Where am I going to get help with those? And of course, some circumstances are extremely positive. And and, and some of them are quite negative. And so the things I'm about to mention could be positive, could be negative. And so a circumstance could be surrounding money or job or family or health or emotions or relationships. And you might want to take a moment as I'm talking here to just write down a couple of things off that list on your worry list. The psalmist is saying this. We are asking, how in the world am I going to make it over that hill? How in the world am I going to make it through that circumstance? Where am I going to get help from? You know, the root word of our word worry comes from the old English word worgen, which means literally at its base to strangle, to constrict, to choke. And so just... Just for a moment, what I want you to do is turn to the person beside you and start to choke them. And as they turn red and then eventually blue, you will get a sense of what worry does to a person. And yet Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly, it says in John chapter 10. So the psalmist says, where does my help come from to deal with these hills? My help, it says in the psalm, comes from the Lord. Not from the hills themselves, not from me, not some uh, set of other circumstances that are going to mitigate the current circumstances. No, my help comes from the Lord. And in fact, this word, the help, comes, is found in the Bible about 200 times. And it's usually used in describing God. And so he is known in the Bible as the quote-unquote, the help. And we use that expression in a different way. But in the Bible, it's known as the help. The help is God. And so worry manifests itself 
an anxiety attaches to it, and we begin to get crippled by it, and people often, not always, often medicate themselves to deal with this with too much alcohol, or they pour themselves into their achievements so they don't have to worry about this over here, or uh, some activity, or some noise, or the internet, or whatever the case is, and they're trying to deal with the worry in their life through control or avoidance. And we only start to come to grips with dealing with this stuff when we admit to ourselves, I'm really not in control of anything. I can't control it by avoiding it. You know, like, can anybody here guarantee their body will stay healthy? And you often hear me say this, it's a good thing to eat right, it's a good thing to exercise, it's a good thing to go to the doctor, but the clock is ticking. And we all know it. When you looked in the mirror this morning, you went, the clock is ticking. (laughs) And ultimately, life and control and health is out of our control. Can we control the economy? Absolutely not. Can we make our spouse change? Not a chance. Only God can change our spouse. And here's an even bigger revelation. Only God can change your spouse's spouse. You'll get that in a second, yeah. But we want to trust our own strength, our education, our social skills, our finances, our network, whatever it is. But eventually, we are going to run into a hill that none of those things can help us go over or around. And on that day, with all our heart, we need to know where to lift our eyes. And the psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. So key question, what kind of help? Because God is about more than simple anxiety avoidance. And this psalm is not suggesting that all the things I think are vitally important that need to get done, somehow God is just going to snap his fingers. If he had fingers, he's a spirit. And they'll just all work out exactly the way I want. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of those circumstances will work out the way I assume they must. That's not what it means. But what it does do is it offers a key word or a key concept. And we see this word, in the NIV anyways, we see it five times in the psalm. And it's the word watch. Or watches. And it says over and over again that God will watch over you. He will watch over Israel. He will watch over your coming and your going. He will watch over your entire life. And whether we know it or not, God is the watcher and we are the watchee. And I'm the kind of created being who needs to be watched over. This is what God is saying. I've created you. But I don't just cut you loose. He's not a deistic kind of God. A deistic kind of God creates things and then just steps back and lets it run on its own. He's not like that. He's a very intimate God. He not only created us, but he steps into our life and he watches over us. All that we do. 
So whatever is going on in our life, in our body, in our finances, in our relationships, in our vocation, in our prospects, whatever it is, he's watching and we don't have to be afraid. It says that in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. So he's an eternal God, as you often hear me say, but he's also a day-to-day God. And so it means when you get up in the morning tomorrow to go to work or to go and volunteer somewhere or to go shopping or wherever it is you're going to go, he's with you. Every moment, every breath, And when you go home at night and go to sleep, he's watching over you as you sleep. He never gets bored. The psalm is saying this. He doesn't slumber sleep. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't get preoccupied. He doesn't get tired. He's there every moment watching. This is one of 15 psalms out of the 150, so about 10% of the psalms by number, uh, are psalms of ascent. And so it's talking about going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is an elevated city. And he says in verse 6, as you're on the pilgrim journey up to Jerusalem, whether you're traveling and you're under the harshness of the noonday sun, and it's quite harsh there, or if you're traveling at night by the moon, I am with you. And what he says in verse 3 is he says, as you're doing this song of ascent, as you're going through life, as you're on the pilgrimage, I will not let your foot slip. What does this mean? Because this is another common biblical phrase which is often misunderstood. It does not generally refer to um, letting our foot slip physically or financially. Not really what it's talking about. It's talking about the path of obedience. That the path of the righteous, he will not let the foot slip. God will help us not to let a foot slip into sin off the path. We see this sort of illuminated in in Psalm chapter 73. It says this, But as for me, the psalmist is writing, and he's just being very honest about what's going on in his life. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he's saying, man, I almost lost it. I almost went way off the rails here. And I almost gave into an attitude of envy and bitterness. And my foot almost slipped because I envied the prosperous who, in my estimation, did not deserve to be prosperous. But God helped me. And if you read that psalm, which is a great psalm, where he's just utterly truthful with God, but at the end he comes to trust him, and though he almost jettisoned or ejected, he doesn't. And so to say that God won't let our foot slip, it's not saying that he's going to keep you from all the problems of life, all the pain and all the trouble and all the discomfort and all the loss. It is saying that he will help us to be obedient which is a great way to do life he will keep you from sin if you let him help you he will guard your eternal soul nothing will harm and crush your soul so there will be trouble but nothing will stick for eternity this is the imagery nothing will stick for eternity The most important stuff, 
And we often forget what the most important stuff is. We're all hooked up in the immediate, right? In the urgent. God is engrossed in what's important. And so the most important stuff, nothing of eternal value is at risk in your life. And so the psalmist is saying, be at peace. He's actually saying, everything temporal is potentially at risk. My job, my body, the bodies of people I love, money, everything temporal, I'm not saying it will be, but potentially is at risk, but nothing eternal, nothing that ultimately matters, nothing that you will take with you when you die. Nothing like that is at risk. You might want to pause and add one or two more things to your worry list. Now, the truth of Psalm 121 shaped the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. It also shaped the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, you know, and many of you would know this, but the Apostle Paul uh, is really the chief architect of the New Testament church. Jesus is the cornerstone. It all rests on him. But the guy that he used to really make it happen, he used all his apostles, all his leadership team, but the guy who planted most of the churches and all that kind of stuff, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament and, and really the chief architect was the Apostle Paul. Let's think about his life for a second. He wrote most of those letters of the New Testament from prison. Not because he'd done anything wrong, but because he was a follower of Jesus. And he writes in different places, let me just amalgamate a few of them. He goes, what then shall trouble me? And believe me, he had lots of trouble. Danger, he experienced that all the time. They were trying to kill him. Hardship, they beat him with rods, they beat him with whips. Famine, they starved him. Persecution happened all the time. He'd come in, he'd start talking about Jesus. Riots would break out. They'd grab him, throw him in jail. The sword, he died for his faith. Now he says, none of these things. None of these things can separate me from the love of Christ. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors, he writes in the book of Romans. And so if you are a Christ follower, you are one with many people that we can count who have sacrificed much for the sake of Christ. There are people sacrificing uh, their freedom, their vocation, their families, their lives all around the world today. The persecution is very active right now, especially in places like China. Very active. And so the image of this psalm, and I think this is kind of a cool image, is we're not cushioned. We are kept. You know, sometimes we have this image of Christianity that it's just like, oh, you know, that's really nice. And especially in the North American church, I think we've been guilty of portraying it that way. That somehow God is like a genie in a bottle that we rub. But this psalmist is telling us 
We are not cushioned. We are kept. And we often pray, you know, cushiony prayers. And I guess in a certain sense that's okay. But really the promises of God is we are kept. Not so much that we are cushioned. Bonhoeffer wrote this, Peace is the opposite of security. To demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, resting in the hand of Almighty God. He lost a lot from an earthly perspective. He was engaged when he was imprisoned, and two years later when he was executed, still in prison, he'd still not been able to get married. So his fiancée had waited for him for two years, and they were never able to get married. He spent those last two years in jail with them pushing him around and doing not good things to him. And in the 1930s, sorry, in, the 19, in his early 30s rather, in uh, 1945, he was hung in a gallows by the Nazis. And I've seen some of those places where they did those things. Not pleasant rooms. A lot of oppression in those rooms when I was in them. As he was being led away to be executed, someone heard him and recorded his last recorded words. I don't know if these were his last, last words, but his last recorded words was this. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. And I can't help but wonder, this is just wild speculation on my part, but I can't help but wonder if Bonhoeffer, who preached his first sermon on this text, his first public sermon on Psalm 121, I can't help but wonder if he quoted this psalm on his way to be hung. So here's the, here's the scoop. This is not a hallmark moment psalm. It's not a promise that we will be cushioned. Rather, it's a promise that we will be kept. That, in fact, we are a kept people. The words of this psalm call for a nobler journey through life. Let me say that again. The words of this psalm call for a nobler journey through life. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. You know, there was another hill years later. And on that hill on a cross was a man. And that man had all of my sin and all your sin laid on him. The man, Christ Jesus, died on a hill so we can live. And the scripture says, you know, the only way to really live is to die to my sin, to die to my smallness, my fear of pain and discomfort. And this is what we're called to do. We're not free from worry. Because believing in God cushions us from the pain. We die with Jesus so that we can live. And so in just a moment, I'm going to just invite all of us to pray silently. And what I'm going to invite you to do is to just take your worry list, whatever that is. And maybe there's one or two more things you want to add. Things that you're worrying about, things that are preoccupying you in a way that takes you away from your real calling in life. And I invite you to just take a moment and pray over those things and say to God, ah, 
They're way beyond me, God. And they're captivating me in an inappropriate way. Would you, would you allow me to just turn them over to you? Would you change my orientation towards you rather than towards them? And just surrender those worries to him. So let's take a moment just in silence and then I'll say something to conclude. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Please stand with us.